And I long advise young people, if you're going to go somewhere, either go to a rocket ship or go to a sinking ship. Don't go to a smooth sailing boat, right? You're not going to learn a thing on calm waters. Welcome to Behind the Brand, the podcast uncovering the stories of innovators shaping the world of brands. I'm your host, Jeff Adamson, and today's guest is Mark Harrison. Mark is the visionary founder of the MH3 Collective, a group of ventures dedicated to connecting people and ideas for positive social impact. The collective includes Humanity, which is focused on brand revitalization, Sidekick, a team of purpose-driven strategists, T1, a full-stack sponsorship and activation agency, and Sponsorship X, a global community of marketing practitioners. Mark's community involvement extends to boards like Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Toronto, the CAMH Foundation, and the Juno Awards. He is also an advisor to ventures like NFL Canada and serves on the board of Playmaker Capital. His commitment to giving back to the community includes co-founding Black Talent Initiative and Park Street Education. His remarkable contributions have earned him the Harry Jerome Award and the Association of Canadian Advertisers 2022 Gold Medal Award. Join us in this episode to explore Mark's journey, his MH3 vision, and his transformative impact on brands and beyond. So I think the thing I want to start with you first, Mark, is you have so much going on. I struggle to even walk and talk at the same time. How do you keep so many plates spinning at the same time? For me, I really look at my life in three simple buckets. And I probably, these are the, my external buckets, if you will. I'm not necessarily going to include my family time. But, you know, first and foremost is what I'll call my entrepreneurship bucket, which is like you, the things that I created, probably to solve problems or, or, or scratch an itch. So my second bucket is my social impact bucket. And uh, I probably should have put that bucket first, but the entrepreneurism allows me or provides me with the opportunity to pursue social impact because sometimes costs and life get in the way. And my, my third bucket is really just my, I'll call it more my one-on-one bucket, things that I do with individuals. So in the first two buckets, you know, one is a, is a for-profit. The second is even more profit because I think with social impact, you're making intergenerational uh, impact. You are, you are changing the course of destiny. And I think for me, the third part is, is which doesn't appear on a website or a LinkedIn page, is just my one-to-one relationships with people in my business community. And again, I, I park my, my personal stuff to the side, but I, you know, I think we're talking about behind the brand here today. So we'll focus a little more on the public-facing stuff. So how did you get into entrepreneurship, social impact in the first place? Is this something that you started out with kind of right out of school or did you, did you jump into a corporate job first? Probably two answers to that. I was actually born into this. I don't think I realized I was born into it until later in life, but I was I was adopted. I was awarded children's aid. I was very, very young, but my mother, you know, early on decided that, you know, she wasn't going to be able to care for me. I was with her first. Whereabouts did you grow up? Was this in, in Canada? I was created in Calgary. I was hatched in Ottawa. More detail <laughs> than you expect. Uh, <laughs> And raised in Aurelia. In Aurelia. And now reside in, in Toronto. Cabin country. Yeah, except for the people who live there, right? Everyone else calls it cottage country. We call it home. It's such a weird thing. It's like, you know the birds that migrate? They lived, they lived in two different places. And so your mom adopted you when you were in, so when she was in Ottawa? My mom gave birth to me in Ottawa, and then I was adopted by the Harrisons. And uh, so they are my parents. Yeah. And so to answer your question, I think that for me, 
that feeling, I knew at a very young age, like 12 or 13, that I was adopted. I had a different set of names. I was given some court papers. And I sort of thought, you know, I don't want somebody else to be able to control my destiny, control my future. If you're just a box on a corporate org chart and somebody in Atlanta, New York, or Toronto, or Montreal, or Vancouver doesn't like that box, they just cross you out with no assessment of you and your skills and your capabilities. And then I think the social impact piece was from a very early age, again, growing up with parents who gave back, but also realizing that I was a beneficiary of system and I was a beneficiary of generosity and somebody saying, I want to make a family for this little this little mutt. And that was amazing. And my parents practiced what they preached, not just me, but I'm older than you. So we we sponsored, you know, I hate the term, boat people. Uh, they were obviously Vietnamese refugees. And so years later, when my wife and I supported Syrians coming to Canada, it was just full circle. So I, I think I was born into it. The technical answer to your question, I had one job. I worked for a marketing agency for seven years before I quit and turned my first business at 29. That is a really interesting background and weird coincidence. So my my co-founder and CEO at Neo, Andrew Chow, his parents were boat people, came over. Oh, really? Yeah, came over and literally nothing, couldn't even put two pennies together, but were able to to kind of work and work and work, opened up this small restaurant. And some of the stories that these people have, you know, coming to Canada and just working their butts off, it really kind of makes me feel like we take a lot for granted here when you see just like where they come from and how grateful they are for what what Canada has to offer. And and even, you know, yourself, like growing up in, in an adopted family and being able to then kind of turn around and give back. I mean, it's just, that's incredible. And, and do you think that that helped you look and say, okay, hey, I want to control my own destiny. I don't want people to put labels on me. Was that the initial reason why you, you decided to start your own companies? I think so. I've always felt like I needed to manage my own destiny. And I, I, tell people, I don't think everybody has to start their own company. I don't think everybody's wired that way, but I firmly believe that people should own their own life. They should own their own career. They should self-manage. I was also the kid in, in, in elementary school that you know was told you could only have one paper route. So you either had to pick the local paper or one of the Toronto papers. And hopefully I won't get arrested for saying this, but you know I, I sort of hired my friends and had them fake sign up for paper routes and everybody bring their papers in my garage and I'd have a sorting party and then I'd have guys out running and I did the collections, trust me. You know, I had a little, little illegal golf gambling ring going in high school. And at university, I started a marketing club called Team Griffin to help the athletics department do better marketing. So I, I feel like self-management was always in my DNA, but I also feel that, you know, some of the stuff you pick up and I would say when you get older in life, sometimes you look back at your own history and you rewrite your own history, which, you know, make it convenient. But I I also think it's connecting dots. And I had some things happen in my life that made me realize, oh, this is why I did that. But sometimes you don't realize that till later on. Yeah. And I think it's a good point you're making there, Mark, on on these little projects and experiments that people do early on. Because I think about a lot of people who start companies, especially if people are, are later on in life in their 30s and 40s. And there's so many just valuable lessons that you can learn just from the the fundamentals and the basics that you, you know, understanding how people behave when they owe you money, understanding like how to, how to sell a product, how to build a brand, how to manage a P&L, all these like basics, no matter how big or small the company is, they're, they're present. And if you can run a lemonade stand and figure that stuff out, it's probably a little bit better, better than betting your house on it when you're 35 and you've got four kids. So excited to use the lemonade stand analogy because I use it often. The ironic thing is my father-in-law who now passed away. He started his first business at 65. So Oof. I think there's 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 pros and cons, right? Today, an entrepreneur, you know, grabs this and they've got 
an entire IT department and the movie studio and a travel business in their phone and a bank. And when I started, I had a spreadsheet with 11 credit cards uh, that I was managing because I couldn't get a credit line. So, you know, I had I had a mortgage at the time in my house that was only 11.75%. So I love telling all these people <laughs> who are complaining. complaining, but yeah. I also understand the absolute cost of my house and relative to yeah. it. But, you know, I started my first business. I bought a BMW, I bought a house, and I quit my job. So to your point, I didn't have children, and that made it easier psychologically. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you you go in you go in both feet, and I literally had to use eleven credit cards to finance the startup of my first marketing company. And so, did that make it easier for you because you had that pressure looming over you, or did you find that like that that actually made it more difficult? Because I I feel like sometimes the more skin in the game you have, when the stakes are are, are the highest, it's when you kind of dig the deepest. And when you don't have as much on the line, then you're kind of like, oh well, if this doesn't work out, then you know, I'll just go and do something different. I, I don't mean to answer a question with a question, but I'll ask you from this perspective. I think I'm at my best when I'm cornered and I'm at my worst when things are going well. I'd love your perspective on that. I, I think you, you're, it's often the case. And so I think the challenge is often like, how can you perform like it's do or die when it really is not? <laughs> and Like, how do you gain yourself? Well, I think that, I mean, there's that famous quote that necessity is the mother of invention or, or even just when you, when you place constraints on something then you become much more creative. And yeah. I do f- I do feel like there's an element of that. I'd love to hear some stories about the early days about where you had no choice but to figure out a way to win. What what stories come to mind when you had that 11 credit cards, a mortgage with at 11%, all those things hanging over you? A lot of 11s happening here. Yeah. yeah. Should have been my hockey jersey. <laughs> I would say this wasn't a crisis, but it was a bit shocking. So in my one and only job, I worked for a marketing company where at 24, I had six people working for me who were all older, and I managed a really big Canadian account. And when I was thinking about going out on my own, lots of people were like, call me, call me, call me. The big shock was when I didn't have the job and the budget and the big <laughs> brand behind me, I was nobody. Where all the people go? <laughs> right. And, and, and this is back in the days when you, you had a phone on your desk that lit up. It wasn't lighting up. Like is the power out or something, or what's going on here? Yeah, right. <laughs> like, like I wasn't getting any any red, and um, here I am in my office, which was in a den in my house with my vice president, my side buddy, the Beagle, and I read some entrepreneurship book that said put a suit on every day, even if you're not going anywhere, <laughs> and the phone wasn't ringing. One thing I didn't mention is I worked in the consumer promotions business, and my first job. Our first company was a sports marketing agency. And all mm-hmm. my friends said, you've never worked in sports marketing. How can you open up a company in that? And I said, well, I like sports and like marketing. Bad answer. And so I did. But I quickly realized that all the people that promised they were going to call didn't call. So the first thing I realized is I had no background. I had no credibility. I had no brand. I had to build my own brand. Mm-hmm. I had, and I had to get into rooms. So how, how did you do that? Because I think there's no one that's going to do that for you. So what were some of the steps that you took to build your own personal brand? I went immediately to what I'll call thought leadership. I, I think I used to actually use this term. If there's any of my former interns listening, they probably heard this lecture. I think I used to call it like the the omnipresent theory. I Every time a decision maker turned around, I wanted to be there. So, <laughs> kind of creepy in some ways. So, but. <laughs> very creepy. It's going to get worse, creepier. <laughs> And so one of the things that I did was I was like, okay, where can I meet prospective clients? And I, you know, I couldn't afford to join industry associations. I couldn't afford to go to conferences, but I stumbled on talking to people that a lot of people ran press conferences. And one thing about press conferences is the PR firm always wants seat fillers. 
Mm. And so I started a little, it's true to this day, okay? You've probably had it when you, you're launching something, the agency's Jeff, we got tons of media coming. And then they're like, phone your cousin, come bring his camera, right? <laughs> stick a stick a CDC logo on it. That's very true. So I started a little newsletter about the industry and I would find out through PR agencies and, and wire services when people are having press conferences and I would ask for media accreditation. And so there, there I am, creepy guy, with 11 credit cards and 11% mortgage and no money to feed himself. I'm at the food bar and early in for the muffins and croissants. <laughs> And I'm there. And at the next event, you see me. And at the next event, you see me. So I actually, you know, the, the strategy was really thought leadership. The newsletter worked. I'd phone people. I would interview them. I would type them up in my little newsletter. I would fax it out to people. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm dating myself. I would go to these events. And then what would happen is I would, I would apply to speak. But I think those principles hold true to this day. Thought leadership, industry presence, finding out what's going on. I love nothing more than hearing from other people what people are working on as a way to gather intel. Oh, it's also just showing up too. Like people always say showing up is 90% of the battle or whatever it is. If you have the guts to get there and then now you're like, well, I'm here now and there's these important decision makers that are here. So how much of a, of a waste would it be if I didn't at least even pitch them or introduce myself or build a relationship in some way? Is that kind of how you thought about it too? Or was there, was there more thought that went into it? Were you more strategic? There was more thought. So the other... There's really three tenets to why I started my business. One was I wanted to control my destiny. So I had, I had been fortunate enough to work at a company that was a complete Titanic. And I long advise young people, if you're going to go somewhere, either go to a rocket ship or go to a sinking ship. Don't go to a smooth sailing. Right? <laughs> yes. You're not going to learn a thing on calm waters. That is very true. There's nothing wrong with going to a sinking ship because you can't lose. If it sinks, it wasn't your fault. And if it, and if anybody gets saved or the ship comes up, you're a hero. 100%. But- I worked at a sinking ship and built a reputation. But as I was there, I was like, I need to control my own destiny. Secondly, I worked for a guy, even though we were a marketing company, who thought that our clients were the enemy. I thoroughly believe to this day that my client is not a company or a corporation. It's the individual sitting across the desk from me. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to create an environment where I could actually spend more time worrying about Kelly than Kelly's company. And that was a big piece of what I wanted to do. And then the third thing is, um, because I think I've always believed in community, back to your earlier point, I was just like, back to showing up, my strategy was, I want to be a part of this community from day one. I don't want to wait till I'm running the biggest company or I got tenure. I want to be a part of it right now. So if we can both agree that strategy is a metaphor for plans, there was a strategy and that was my plan. At the company that was a sinking ship, what did you find? And, and the reason I'm asking this question is is because there's a lot of people who are going through difficulties. You know, you look at not just tech companies, but you, you've got cost of, of living crisis and you've got inflation, you've got logistics and supply chain issues, companies are cutting back. So a lot of people, I think, are their careers, I think probably for the last 10, 15 years, especially people my age in their, in their 30s, it was pretty, I'd say calm seas. None of them had ever really had a storm. And now we're kind of heading into one is what everyone keeps saying. And, and you're starting to see it happen. There's a recession coming that people have been saying that for a while. So what what did you find effective when, when the waters got choppy to really rally everyone and to, to turn the ship around? So the company I was at, we had a piece of business. It's Mars Canada, time was FM Canada. And I remember my very first meeting, my boss, who was the owner of our company's best friend steps out with his with the client's boss double smoke and the guy looking across and he said to me and i was 22 years old 
with a big afro and a brown suit and driving an old Valari. And he leans in and says, just so you know, we hate your company. Ooh. This is my very first meeting of my entire career. Ooh, that's spicy. We hate your company. <laughs> we hate your owner. The only reason we work with you is your owner and our VP of marketing went to the University of Manitoba together. Nice Winnipeg connection there. So what did I do? I do what I did a lot in my career, called my mom. Not because I'm a mama's boy. Growing up, my mom was the, you can do anything you want to do in life person. And my dad was befriend the janitors. That was my dad's entire operating system. In any organization, get to know the janitors because every organization has janitors. Mom, what do I do? They hate me. What did they say? They said they hate the company. Well, they don't hate you. This was the smallest account in the company and we had a chance we were going to lose it. And so first of all, I realized it wasn't personal. Secondly, I was like, the good news is you know where to go, but up. And thirdly, at, even at that age, I focused on that person. How can I help their career? And at 22, I found myself becoming a, a confidant of 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds. I want to get promoted. Uh, stuff going on personally, stuff going on with their kids. I made that comment early about community. So I made it my mission. I'm going to turn this into the number one account we have. I'm 22 years old. Mm -hmm. I'm working for the owner's boss, who's an idiot, by the way. Like he's a total idiot. But I was like, I'm going to make myself irreplaceable, invaluable to these clients. I'm going to solve their problems. I'm going to solve them personally. I'm going to solve them professionally. Mm -hmm. I'm going to focus on that. And, and so to tell me a bit more about that though. I'm, I'm, was it purely relationship-based? Was it, did you make some big swings or, or was it really just bit by bit by bit working your way into this account? I would call it 100% deliverable. So I'll try to make this relatively short, but I actually started my job in my last year in university because I switched programs. So I was in my fifth year, had extra credits. But I was working January to April part-time, three days a week, driving back and forth from Guelph to Toronto. And then I was going to go full-time. But I decided working for this boss guy, that this guy was an idiot. I was going to quit. I couldn't stand him. I told a couple of people. I graduate and my owner says, I got you two graduation presents. I'm like, well, I'm actually here to quit. Just <laughs> hear me out. The first present was he fired Bob, who was his best friend. So I'd been there three months and he's firing his best friend. I'm 22, best friend's like 37. And then he, he gives me a new car, like literally, like I'm kind of like, what happened here? But he knew I was going to make him money. Now I'm not saying he's a good guy. So the first was I convinced everybody internally I could solve this. They gave me a couple more bosses, didn't work out, but ultimately I became the boss. And my entire focus with the client was to understand what makes her tick. Is it getting promoted? Is it stuff going on in their lives? They weren't big bets. There was a couple, which I'll share with you. But it was convincing them that I was their person, 724, 365, to get stuff done. And it ranged. I had one client who was super smart, very much a visionary, never got anything done. One day I said to him, you've got the big XYZ brand. I won't say the brand in case he's listening. Presentation on Thursday, how's that deck going? He's like, oh man, I can't get it done. I'm screwed. I'm I have all these ideas. I might just wing it. I said, no, no, no. I'm coming to your house tonight. Came to his house, took notes, went back to the office, typed up the plan, made a PowerPoint, gave it back to him, no branding. He went and presented like a hero. Mm -hmm. That my job? Is that right of him to do? I don't care. That's what you do, right? Mm. Another time we were called into a big meeting. The owners of Mars Canada are the Mars Brothers. They were up wanting to know our new plans to launch Pal Dog Food Wet. All the agencies have their presence there. I'm 23 and three quarters. The Mars Brothers are shooting down the advertising and the PR and everything. And they turn to me or they turn to my client and say, who's the president of our promotions agency? And they said, well, he's not here today. He's out of the country. He was a lie. He was golfing. What is the cap character here? And I look like I'm 11 years old, by the way. So they look at me 
and I'm looking at them. It's kind of like Eddie Murphy in that Trading Places movie where the two old white guys sit in the couch wondering what they're going to do with them. Right. I like, oh, I'm screwed. But we're in the lab where the dogs, uh, like the tasting lab where the dogs ate the food. Mm-hmm. So there's dogs around us some food. So I got down on all fours in my same suit, put my face into the dog food, and I started eating. Dogs weren't happy. I was pushing them away. <laughs> and while I'm down there eating the dog food, literally, eat, there's no matter for it here. Like, I'm eating the dog food. <laughs> I get up. I kind of wipe my chin and take a sip of water. I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Mars, Mr. Mars. I said, I think it'd be disingenuous for me to tell you what my promotional ideas were without ever having tried the product. <laughs> Jesus. So the rain goes silent. They look at each other and then they go, everybody, eat the dog food. Oh, so you geez. had all these people in their fancy outfits <laughs> and they're hating me, but I'm in the corner. That was probably a pretty big bet because I could have been arrested. <laughs> we probably could have been fired. But by eating the dog food, I was like, this is the extent I'm willing to go. There were a lot of strategic things. It was bringing in new ideas and it was doing stuff that I think is basic. So I would subscribe to US Trade Magazines. This is pre-internet, you gotta remember, right? There wasn't social. Yeah. I'd subscribe to US Trade Magazines of any category I worked in. So one day I see that our US counterparts are running this cool promotion called Chunks of Gold where they put actual gold the dog food in the US. Mm. And I tell the team in Canada, why aren't we running this? And they said, well, we can't because our government won't let us put prizes in the food. And they said, but thanks for bringing it to us. And they appreciated that I was going above and beyond. And I was just doing what I was asked. I was understanding the category. And that's one thing I'd say to anybody, whether you own a brand or you're servicing people, like you, you got to understand the business beyond mm-hmm. anything that's offered to you. If, if all you're doing in a report is the five things asked, what are the 25 others? There's a couple of things there that I want to double click on because I think they're, they're really underrated. One, the, like when you're partner or client or whoever it is, when they know the level of commitment that you have and the extent that you're willing to go to for them, I think it really mean, it means a ton and it's uncommon. It, it kind of transcends you know, the marketing materials and the contract it, because so much of the relationship will fall outside of those things. And that's ultimately, I think, where the rubber hits the road is the strength of the relationship and how far the people working together with you are willing to go. And the second thing you said, Mark, was really around knowing things about the industry that clients potentially would be surprised to know that you know. You know, I've been in meetings where you you can you see someone bring something up. The people across the table are impressed that the person knows those things. Right. When they are in meeting after meeting after meeting and no one's really- no time to think. Yeah, no, no time to think, but they also are hearing a lot of the same things. And I feel like with so much information that people get thrown at them nowadays, it's so much pattern recognition. And so they're just like, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, it's kind of the same thing, rinse and repeat. You know, it's the one thing that was different that stood out from the rest of the herd that wins you, you know, the contract and the deal or the partnership or whatever it is. I'd love to hear like, cause, cause you're big on, on partnerships and sponsorships. Like you've, you've built a career on this. I'd love to hear kind of the, your approach to partner. I think I have an understanding of some of the ways that you got to it, but partnerships are a big thing now. I mean, we at Neo, we do tons, but you see all these large companies are all looking for different ways to partner. What has been your approach to partnering uh, and how has that evolved throughout your career? I think when a big brand wants to partner with, whether it be a traditional sponsorship, get involved with a charity, double down on influencers or musicians, the person across the desk from them, or the person making the decision, 
their first and foremost thought is, will this get me fired, right? So nobody gets fired for sponsoring the Calgary Stampede or the Montreal Canadiens or the New York Yankees or Coachella. But really, our job as the people in between is to convince them that, hey, these are the business opportunities you should be pursuing. And we have a bunch of criteria and we can talk about some of that. And here's why you should do it. And I'd say the big change that I've seen is that 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's really hard to talk people off that I don't want to get fired or my CEO wants to do that. 100%. Whereas now, you still have some bias, but there's a lot more belief and and commitment to understanding the data, understanding insights, understanding uh, exploring. And I think that's one of the key differences that I'll, I'll pause on is that and the industry has become better at it. There's still a lot of sales where there's, you know, the corporate hosting or this and that, and there's nothing wrong with that, but that isn't the through line. And I think that in the sport and entertainment world, and I have nothing to do with them, people like Red Bull have shown the way in that through line. But then you can flip over and look at, at brands like, you know, Tentree, who literally were started as a social enterprise that happens to sell clothing mm-hmm. and people go, oh my gosh, like there's a really well connected and, and the data supports it because if their products suck, consumers wouldn't buy it just because they're supporting the environment, but they're also building innovative technology. So that's a bit of a ramble, but I'd say the single biggest difference, mm-hmm. the industry has collectively become more sophisticated and by doing so has become less biased. I agree with you. And and honestly, I'm ashamed to admit it that it's gotten easier because I feel like it's still very difficult for large companies and people within large companies to take risks. And so for me to imagine that it's it was harder is actually kind of a bit demotivating for me because it feels like it's really hard right now. But it, it makes sense though, that you can at least prove that partnerships are working through data and insights. Whereas 10 years ago, 20 years ago, those things would have been much more difficult. I think it's also where you are. So we can't talk about taking risks without talking about, in partnership, without talking about Bud Light. And what Bud Light did in the US, they did the wrong thing for the wrong reasons. And then they had the wrong response for the wrong reasons. And then they had (laughs) on top of it, the wrong response for the wrong reasons. And ultimately, we wound up in a situation where, you know, again, this is third-hand info, but, you know, you had had people getting death threats, you had had Mm -hmm. alleged celebrities, you know, protesting the brand. Whereas in Canada, at first, they were, they got nervous and they're not a client. So I want to be clear, like I'm just as an observer, but then they doubled down on, no, 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 we've always supported the queer community. We have a right to support. So I, I think there is unfortunately a market by market situation on taking risks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, to your point, I guess the reason I think it was harder is we didn't have the data 15 years ago to go to the boss and say, no. I mean, the ironic thing is I was going to use golf as a metaphor, but golf has innovated so much that it's actually not just because the CEO wants to do it, because there's actually some really powerful things you can do in it. Mm-hmm. But we have the data now. I mean, you can use the data to to kind of prove that a deal makes sense or a partnership makes sense, but oftentimes you're not going to have the data beforehand. After the fact, yes. I'd love to hear kind of like, how have you, and I'm sure you've worked on lots of sponsorship deals throughout throughout your career where there's a leap of faith involved and you you actually need to get people in large companies to take risks. What what have you found successful in, in getting people to understand the risk reward ratio? I would say if we were spending $100 on analysis, that to your point 10 years ago, yeah. it was 10 up front and 90 at the back. And now I would say it's probably... If it isn't 50-50, it might even be 60% up front because we now have tools. So 
what tools do we have? Well, we have publicly um, domain tools. So we can go and do social listening and, and actually understand when a property tells us that this is how their audience engages. Quick question, sorry to interrupt. But so you mean like 50-50 in terms of like 50% of the deal value would be upfront, 50% of the deal value would be tailing or trailing? That great question. 50% of our effort and dollars on analysis are upfront. Okay. So valuation versus evaluation. So, so not the deal. Okay. Our our work, our industry's work. To your point, we can bring in a lot of data points ahead of time, whereas before it used to be all on the exit. And the data points coming in are related to understanding, you know, the consumer's connection to the ideas, understanding the value and reputation of the organization, utilizing comparables um, from different sectors, and and building a model. So there's a lot of great subscription services you can pull stuff together and and most everybody in the business then puts that together in their own their own recipe, right? And you might use an Instapot and I might use a pressure cooker, but we, we both have our models. When you think about the all the deals you've done over your career, which which sponsorship or partnership are you most proud of? Like what stands out? And it doesn't need to be the biggest, but the one where you're like, man, this one was special. This is like children though, right? You're asking me to pick. There's a few. I think that one of them is probably, I was actually doing some consulting work. So I started my business, I was consulting work for both properties and brands, and I still am. But I helped the Calgary Stanfeed figure out the telco category that wound up with their Bell relationship, and that relationship has endured for decades. And it really was how Bell planted their flag in Western Canada. And so what I love about that deal, and it was big, but it was beyond sponsorship. It was part of the business imperatives, right? It unlocked business accounts. It provided credibility that Bell was going to be here. And I don't work with Bell anymore. I was actually, the Stampede was my client at the time. I was a consultant to them and I was okay. tasked with running the process to figure out, should they stick with, I think I think they're actually called AGT at the time, tells you how long ago this was. Yeah. And there was some other people, players like WorldCom who went bankrupt, and which was great because they were super rude to me in the process. So I didn't mind going bankrupt. But for me, that deal was really important to how sponsorship should be used because to me, it should be at the heart of your business. And another deal that I'll talk about is a deal that I talked to Clyde out of. So I did some work years ago for the Canadian Breast Cancer Foundation. So you killed the deal? Yes. Interesting. And they had an opportunity with a car maker. And I didn't think they were getting enough money from the car maker. And the car maker wasn't valuing the brand equity in the run for the cure that I thought they should have. Mm. And so in order to talk them out of that deal, we got them to give us some time and money to actually go and look at the car sector. And what we understood was this was we're getting this much money offered by head office. I'm trying to find a physical metaphor on a podcast. So pretend we're getting 10 bucks from the head office and there are a hundred run sites. But what we found is that each of the run sites, the local car dealer in town wanted to be involved. And if head office bought it, we were constrained. So they are better off getting 50 cents from every one of the car dealers in hundred market and grossing $50 versus taking the head office deal for 10. And I knew they were undervalued. I knew that the car maker was like, oh, this cancer charity, they'll be happy to have us. Yeah. I knew that local dealers would activate more. So those are two examples. When I think of of entrepreneurship, I look at everything that you've done. And I mean, like you have 13 ongoing projects. I know you had said that kind of falls into three different buckets, but I'm, I'm doing basically one thing right now. And, and like- and a, on a much larger scale. So it, let's not, but let's it, not, but it I, feels, are we serving humble pie today? I'm not eating it. <laughs> but so still, you shouldn't. still, so 13 and, and, um, and which I think is an amazing thing. Like, uh, cause I, 
I personally believe entrepreneurship is, is important to Canada. I'd love to hear why you think entrepreneurship is important in, in Canada, or or is it perhaps the alternative to, to entrepreneurship? You know, are bigger companies more important? I think entrepreneurship is the profession of the future, and I think entrepreneurial is the trait of the future. Why, why is that? There's a few reasons. One is entrepreneurship is the opportunity for those like your co-founder, maybe yourself and maybe me, or maybe we weren't born into it, to achieve. Entrepreneurship is the place for Black women, for marginalized people, refugees to come and earn without being told their value isn't determined by a chart or a system or a set of tiers, but their value is determined by what they're able to contribute to society. And entrepreneurship, I believe, provides innovation, resilience, and not to sort of take it to a dark place, but if you look at the Russian nation of Ukraine, like the entire drone and defense network, there's this, this, this tech army in Ukraine. They are better innovators and entrepreneurs. And now it's actually coming, and, and actually you think about the history of war, unfortunately innovation has, has often been at its peak yeah. during war and invasion and crisis, and back to your earlier point. I feel like everybody was an entrepreneur for a time in their life, mm-hmm. and they had to deal with raising money as you have, creditors bleeding down in that stock people talking about you, literally watching how many orders you got by the minute going, crap, that new offer we put out isn't working, we got to pivot. Yeah, You can't replace that. The, the, the things you learn, how do I create resources that are not mm-hmm. the skill set? And I think when you combine those things, the opportunity for entrepreneurs, you get to set your destiny. I never wanted to pursue entrepreneurship on the concept of, I'm going to do this and spit a unicorn out and do that and spin a unicorn out. But I've always felt like if I have my own things that I can control my business and I'm my harshest critic, mm-hmm. and I, the last thing I'll say is I, I like being accountable for my own mistakes. I don't like being accountable for somebody else's mistakes. Yeah. And in, and in a lot of ways, it just mimics real life. You, you, you don't have anyone protecting you. The consequences are real. The risks are real. Can't hide. No one's going to shield you from the yeah. realities of of the world. Customers aren't going to just give you their money out of the kindness of their heart. People aren't going to just go out and say nice things for no reason. You really have to face all of it. And I find that the people that hide from it are often the people that the companies don't survive because it eventually will catch up to them. Let me tell you a quick story about the difference between an entrepreneur and somebody who's never had to be an entrepreneur in their lives. So 2020 hits, world shuts down. I have 75 full-time people. I lose 80% of my business in two hours. Like it just, whew, Friday the thir- literally Friday the 13th, right? March 13th, 2020. So we're scrambling and we hear about these little government programs and this and that, and I don't want to let people off and I have leases and whatever. And so we have a conversation with you know, the BDC. They're putting out emergency loans. Yeah. Our CFO goes and fills out the form and we get rejected. Why? Because we don't have a credit history. Why? Because I built this little tree fort, lemonade stand, from z- one person to 75, 26 years, I'd never had a credit line. Now, I had credit cards, so they're all personal. Yeah. So think about this. You're working at a company, at a big bank, and you have a form where you're inputting data from this entrepreneur who's created 75 jobs that pay taxes, not to mention all the suppliers and all the rest of it, yeah. and the brands we work with. And I'm credit, I'm not credit worthy. I'm, I'm a zero. That story is the difference between an entrepreneur and a manager. Having to deal with situations like that and to deal with what's broken essentially and then figure out a way. Entrepreneurship is is on the decline 
at the moment in Canada. I've heard. And it's never been easier to start a company. Why is that? I wish I knew. I mean, I've probably read the same things you have. I have thought about this a little bit, and I was actually asked this question the other day by a journalist, so I'm cheating a bit because I flopped through my answer, and when I walked away later, I realized, I think the answer is in story. You got to do over here, Mark. I think we have not created an environment where we have told people this country, this city, this province where you live is supportive of entrepreneurs that we have put so many mental and psychological barriers up. Mm. We are not cheerleading for it. We have city councils deciding we're going to restrict the number of Uber licenses because we're saving the environment. Don't get me wrong, save the environment. But everything that is said to us from government, from institutions, from big business, you know, if you're a small supplier and you go to try to sell to a big tower and they, they want to like, when, when, when you apply to get become a supplier to some companies and they ask for like, two years of audited financial statements. Do they even freaking know how much it costs to get financial statements audited? <laughs> what if you're a startup? Yeah. What if you quit your job yesterday? It's about the story. The story is, I'm going to bang on Jeff's head till he goes back into his little place yeah. and does what he's told. We need to change the story. And that's why, you know, folks like you that are out there and I, and I think of my friend circle, we have to change the story. So thank you for the do-over. No, I think that's a great answer. And I think it does tie into... A lot of the culture that we have in Canada, we had Colin Deacon on the podcast, Senator Colin Deacon, I, I think you call him by his correct name. It, we were talking about this culture we have in Canada where we kind of like seeing our heroes fall a little bit, you know, and if you did well, it was because you probably took from someone else in some ways, like it's a fixed pie. And if, you're, if your slice of that pie grew, it, be, it, it was because you took someone else's slice. And maybe it's because we haven't had enough breakout successes in the last 50 years. Like, and a lot of them have been barely publicized. Like the one I talk about here locally in Calgary is, is Solium. Solium was a multi-billion dollar tech startup, grew over a period of 20 years and was sold for $1.3 billion to, to massive American bank, Morgan Stanley. And if I were to ask 100 people on the streets in Calgary, have you heard of Solium? maybe one or two would, would have said that they knew. So I think, I mean, people doing what you're doing, getting after it and starting things and figuring it out as you go and pushing the envelope, challenging the status quo. I mean, you're exactly what I think we need more of in Canada, Mark. And and so I, I want to thank you for for coming on and, and telling a bit about your story. I feel like we're only just scratching the surface here. Like you're, you didn't even touch on, like you're involved in the Junos, you're involved in Black Talent Initiative. Like you've got just a ton of things. Maybe we'll have to do a do-over maybe in, in 12 months and, and share notes again. Well, uh, you know, this is what happens when pe people like me just get starting on their, their stories and start babbling on about e eating the dog food. Well, that, that's like, I cannot wait to have my next team huddle. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I appreciate the conversation. I think that um, the fact that you're on your second amazing startup, first one becoming, you know, part of a global government, but in my mind also still a really great Canadian brand and done some pretty amazing things. You know, I'm sure that it doesn't go unnoticed in your life that, you know, you guys are operating. You're not, you didn't have to move to Toronto or New York or Chicago to do it, but I'm sure there are days when along the way you're like, we moved to Silicon Valley, we moved here, moved to, you know, London, like it would be cheaper, easier access to money. And Canada needs more jobs. We need to tell the story and the full story. And it's not because everybody needs to become an entrepreneur, but over half our population is employed in small businesses. Over half. Yeah, 98% of companies in Canada are small businesses. You and I can't afford the lobbyists and the propaganda machines, but like once in a while, we just need a break. And uh, I think to your point, 
even just a pat in the back from somebody as opposed to a critical eye. You know, maybe to end it on this is that for anyone who's thinking about starting a company, succeed or fail, you have the respect of every other entrepreneur because they understand uh-huh. that it's not about whether you kind of hit the home run on the first try. Like the respect that I have for people who are just getting after it and they're saying, hey, I see a problem, I'm going to go and solve it. You know, I want to forge my own destiny, control my future. It doesn't matter if you succeed. It it really just matters that you're you're getting after it. And and I feel like a lot of people are just afraid potentially of what are people going to think if it doesn't work out. And so if you are on the on the on the sidelines at the moment, you know, obviously do your work, have a good team, get everything in order, and then go for it. So thank you, Mark, for coming on. This this has been great. And I appreciate that. It was fun. Thanks. Thank you for tuning in to Behind the Brand. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. If you're interested in learning more about Neo Financial, visit us at neofinancial.com. Behind the Brand is a production of Neo Financial and Media Lab YYC, hosted by Jeff Adamson. Strategy, research, and production by Keegan Sharp, Alana Tefelchuk, and Kyle Marshall.